All right. Well, we are going to continue our book of Hebrews series today, and we're going to be in one of the most debated texts of scripture among theologians. Um, I listened to one pastor preaching on this and and he said when he was in seminary, he heard a professor giving a lecture on this particular passage in Hebrews six. And he thought to himself, I'm never going to preach on that when I pastor. And 25 years later, he did. He did preach on it because he was going through preaching a series through the book of Hebrews. And that's what we're doing here. And one of the things that it does for us and, and me particularly is it causes us to get out of our comfort zone to look at text and wrestle with portions of scripture that we don't tend to gravitate towards in our devotional time. This is just one of those portions of scripture uh, that, that it's good for us to wrestle with and ask ourselves, what's going on here? What does this mean? How does this apply to me? How does this apply to those around me? How does this fit into the big story of scripture? And so we're going to look at a major warning, one of the most severe warnings in the book of Hebrew, in the Bible, uh, and, and one of the two major ones in the book of Hebrews. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of a picture I have in my office. And on the picture, it's, it's titled The Watchman. And on the picture, there is a watchman on a wall who has fallen asleep while there is an army coming to invade the city that that watchman was supposed to be looking out for danger and blowing the trumpet if danger, if danger was coming, if the sword was coming. It's a, it's a depiction of Ezekiel 33 where God says that if the watchman sees the sword coming and he blows the trumpet and he warns the people and they don't do anything about it, then their blood is on their own head. But but if he sees the sword coming and he falls asleep or he doesn't warn them of the sword that's coming, then God says, I'll requ- I will require their blood upon the, the watchman who didn't do his job to warn of the danger that was coming. And the Apostle Paul, when he was preaching, exhorting the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he alluded to this when he made this statement. He said, I have not shrinked back. I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So the Apostle Paul, he didn't, he didn't hold back, but he spoke what was helpful, what was necessary. He preached the word of God when it was, uh, the things that were sweet and pleasant and good and true. And also those things that are difficult and, and nerve wracking that, that shake us up with inside that, that these warnings, these severe warnings, he communicated both the goodness and the severity of God. And we come to a text today that it both has assurances and it, ha- it has warnings and assurances. So let's pray and we'll dive in here together. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word that's inspired, that's author- authoritative, that's true, it's good, it's right. And this morning as we open up the pages of scripture, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would strengthen our confidence in you. I pray that you would reveal any lies that we have believed and help us to believe the truth. May we, as a result of our time here together, may we love you more, love one another more. May we be stirred to love and good works. May we be more confident that your word is true and that you are a faithful God who keeps promises. 
And may, may we who truly are yours be more assured of your work of salvation in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I read an article yesterday about two guys, YouTube stars, uh, Rhett McLaughlin and Lint Neal. They were former missionaries, Christians. They were, they worked with a ministry called Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ. And they, they became YouTube stars and grew a, a significant influence among young people, especially doing silly things and songs and just some, some crazy stuff. And, and then they became apostates, if you will. They became what, what the, the author of the article calls apostles of unbelief. And they have shaken the faith of several young people. And so I'm just going to read an excerpt from this article that I read yesterday, written by Elisa Childers. Rhett and Link have grown their brand of performing hilarious satirical songs and engaging in zany stunts, such as duct taping themselves together, playing wedgie hangman, crushing glow sticks in a meat grinder, and flinging bags of dog feces at one another's faces. With guest appearances on the, the, the Today Show, live with Kelly and the Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, their stars have been rising for the past few years, swelling their net worth to an estimated 23 million. They were also Christians, former missionaries, and, and Campus Crusade uh, staff members. For Rhett, it started with questions relating to science, the age of the earth, evolution. It morphed into doubts surrounding biblical reliability, the historicity of the resurrection, and the general idea of hell and judgment. But as both Rhett and Link recounted, there was something brewing underneath the intellectual questions. They both felt a deep discomfort with the biblical sexual ethics, which they perceived to openness in their LGBTQ friends. And so here's, here's two guys that are going to illustrate, I think, what the, what the author is talking about as we look in Hebrews 6. And there's the biblical term that the, the, the Bible uses for this, those who have fallen away from the faith or those who turn away from the faith is apostasy. And so we're going to read that and we're going to see and we're going to wrestle with how do we make sense of this? Somebody who has an understanding of Christianity, who's been involved in it. How do we, how do we make sense of that? Okay. So with that said, let's look at verse four. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away to restore again, restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, 
Yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And all God's people said, amen. All right. So here's the big idea of where we're going. God warns of judgment that will come upon those who are unfaithful and he gives assurance of salvation to the faithful. Christians have a sure and steadfast hope in Christ because God is faithful to his purpose and promise. Amen. In verse four, he starts off with this impossible statement. There's a handful of impossible statements in the book of Hebrews, and we'll start by looking at those. Uh, the first one is it's impossible in the case of those who've fallen away to restore them again to repentance. And we'll look at wrestle with what that means here shortly. Um, another statement there is in verse 18, when, as we read a little bit f- further, speaking of God's faithfulness and credibility and the reason why you and I can have assurance in Christ. Because by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God's word is true. And we can trust him and what he said and what he's promised to us. Uh, Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now this is important because one of the temptations here, the temptation here for for those in the, the Christian community who were Jewish... There was a temptation to go back to Judaism, go back to the old sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time explaining that those former sacrifices are insufficient to remove sins. Only Christ's blood is the perfect sacrifice and can eternally wash away our sins, wash them as white as snow. And then Hebrews 11, uh, the, the, the chapter of faith. And this is something we'll see throughout the entire book of Hebrews, a call for the people of God to be faithful, fixing our eyes on the faithful one. He says in Hebrews 11, 6, this is probably one of the most known verses in Hebrews. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's look a little bit further at some of these descriptions of these people here that the author is talking about. Remember last week we talked about the author of Hebrews emphasized the spiritual immaturity of the audience and he challenged them to grow up, challenged them to grow up in their faith. And he said, you know, I wanted to give you guys more. I wanted to give you the meat. I want, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek and, and the priesthood of Jesus. And you, I don't know if you guys can handle it. He has a little pause in there from Hebrews 5.11 into the end of chapter 6. And then he picks right back up and spends a few chapters talking about Melchizedek. He ends up doing it anyway. So we'll get into that next week. But he has this kind of this wake up moment. Like you guys are, you guys are dull in hearing here. So listen up, right? Pay attention. Let's grow up. And then he also has this severe warning. It's not to the immature believers. These are to the edge standards, the edge standards, if you will. 
Those who've, who've, who've come to the edge of Christianity and they, they ha- they've had these experiences and, and they're just standing on the edge. Okay, and actually I'm getting ahead of myself because I want to let you guys wrestle with this. So notice, notice these Christian experiences that the author is describing. Okay, because this is something to wrestle with. I've wrestled with this over the years. Uh, and early on in my Christian faith, I interpreted this passage different than I do today. Because I read it on the surface and I didn't read it in light of many other New Testament verses. When I would read stuff like this, when it, it's very concerning. It's alarming. It should get our attention. This is a warning sign. And warning signs have purpose. Warning of real danger, right? So notice the first thing. These are people who have been enlightened. Once enlightened. They've been once enlightened. These are F.F. Bruce says that that's probably referring to baptism. That was a, a reference to baptism. Uh, again, theologians have debate over this. I'm not going to solve all the answers here today, but I'm just going to mention some things uh, that I think are helpful from, from those who I have read, and I'm going to share with you where I stand on this particular passage. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Okay, what does that mean? They've tasted the heavenly gift. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce argues that it's probably the Eucharist. They've, they've partaken of the sacraments of, they've been baptized, and then they've, they've taken communion. They've had the Christian experience. They've been among the Christian community. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Uh, now, it doesn't, it doesn't say like what Paul said in, in Ephesians 1, that they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The language here is ambiguous. It's not super clear here by the way little little side note when we're reading passages that aren't super clear we should we should probably lean towards other passages in scripture that are super clear about certain doctrines so let me just put that little plug in there so they've shared in the holy spirit they've been partakers in the holy spirit in some way they've tasted of the goodness of the word of god they've heard it they've responded In some way. And then they've tasted of the powers to come. Now is this a Christian? You can nod your head or or, or give me a no. Is this a Christian? So who is being described? So a couple questions I think are important to ask. Because theologians have a few different views here. The first one is. This was a true Christian. Who lost their salvation. They, They turned away from God. They were once saved. Now they're not saved. Because they've turned their back on Christianity. Okay, that's one view. Is this a true believer who loses their rewards and their inheritance? That's another view. Okay, someone make that argument. This was a true believer. He's not talking about losing salvation. This is inheritance rewards. There's a problem with that. Because of the severity of the language here. Okay, there's a problem with that. Is this an unbeliever? That seems to be a struggle there because of all these Christian experiences that this person has had. They've been among the Christian community. They've had some touches by the Holy Spirit, if you will. They've heard some things. They've seen some things that have affected their life in some way. And so, or is this an unbeliever who appears to be a believer? Now, this is where I'm going to land theologically. Okay, and if you if you want to talk about this after, we, we can. But I'm going to try to do my best to explain why I've spent... A pretty good amount of time wrestling with this and talking with many people about their walk with the Lord and where they're at with God throughout the years. For 20 plus years, I've met people on the street who say, yeah, I love Jesus. 
I'm a Christian. I'm following Jesus. And, and their profession of faith doesn't line up with the way that they're living their life. And so we, we have to wrestle with that. What's going on with this person? And if that's us, if we're those people who have a profession of faith, but our lives and our the way we live and the way we think and the way we speak hasn't been changed by the gospel, the trajectory of our life hasn't changed, we should question what's going on here. There's some major inconsistencies here with what the Bible describes as real Christianity and a profession of Christianity. Two other questions are, are to, to consider is, is this warning real? Is it a real warning for genuine believers or is it just hypothetical? That's another view. Some theologians would say this is just a hypothetical warning for real believers. Well, again, I think that I would agree with the theologians who would say no because of the severity. Why would the author do that? Uh, So I think this is a real warning and I think real believers need to hear it. But I think it especially applies to those who are, who think they're real, they're genuine Christians, but they may not be. So is this a real warning for professing believers or for false converts? And so let's first look at this, um, this, this idea of falling away. This is apostasy. This is what apostasy is. Somebody who has fallen away. And so we have to wrestle with that. Apostasy is real. It's something that throughout history, we've seen those in the Christian community Start off with the profession, but then fade out and not continue to the very end. And so we have to make sense of this somehow. We got to wrestle with this theologically. F.F. Bruce says that the scriptures contain encouragement enough and spare the feeblest believer, but are full of solemn warnings to those who think they stand to beware lest they fall. So this is a real warning sign that I think each of us should take heed to and we should feel the weight of this text. We should have this stirring in us. It may not be for ourselves, but it may be for a loved one, a family member who's a part of a church. It may be for a friend who has a profession of faith, but there's inconsistencies with their walk. This idea of it being impossible Impossible to restore them to repentance. Now, this is a a difficult thing to wrestle with. William Lane says this. He says, repentance is impossible in verses four through six. It's impossible because there is nowhere else to go for repentance once one has rejected Christ. The apostate, in effect, has turned their back on the whole means available for forgiveness before God. I think that's a helpful Helpful statement. And so how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of these severe warnings of these, these who appear to be Christians? What do we do? What do we do with that? There's a couple of things that I would point to that have been helpful. One is think about Judas. It's not, I know this isn't very exciting and, and comforting today. It's not fun to think about Judas, but Judas was chosen by Jesus, one of the 12 who walked with Jesus. He performed miracles with the apostles. He preached the gospel. He had some significant experiences of the spirit of God moving amongst him and even through him. Just like the other apostles. They came back, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. I mean, Judas was rolling with Jesus for three years. What's going on with this guy? 
Okay, it should baffle us when we hear about somebody who seems so close to God and they have a believable profession of faith. It should make us wonder what's going when they turn away, when they turn away from following God, we should be asking ourselves, what's going on with that? Because this happens, this kind of thing happens and it even happened amongst one of Jesus's 12. Now, we may be surprised by it. We may be rattled and shaken by those who fall away. But know that Jesus isn't. Know that God isn't. Second Timothy tells us that God's solid foundation of God stands firm. Having this seal that the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And so Jesus knew from the beginning where Judas was at. Okay, so there's some sovereignty and some mystery there that we just have to wrestle with. I, I, I don't think I can fully explain what's going on there, but I know there's some mystery there and there's some sovereignty there. John gives us some insight. In John chapter 6, it says, But there were some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. You see, Jesus started to get crowds of people who were professing believers. They saw miracles and they believed. They, they, they got excited and they came and Jesus gave them food. They came for the meals and they came for the miracles. And then, you know what? It seemed like when Jesus got the biggest crowds, he started pulling out some of the difficult sayings. Like in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Like in that, that was like a lot of, that was enough for everybody to be like, this guy's crazy. We're out of here. All right. And then Peter, Jesus is like, do you want to go too? And, and Peter's like, where else, where else can we go? Who, you alone have the words of eternal life. And that's the response of the true believer. That's what happens with the true believer and, and the false Christian. When, when, when things get hard, when there's difficult teaching or there's difficult circumstances, it sifts out the true from the false. Now we don't know who they are. It's not our job to try to figure out, you know, everybody's, where everybody's at. We're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, right? But it's not our job to kind of figure out. Ultimately, God only knows where people are at spiritually. He knows their state. We may be surprised. Who make it, who makes it to heaven. And we may be surprised who doesn't make it to heaven. John 6, 70, 70, 71, Jesus answered and he said, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Think about that as you wrestle with this idea of apostasy and what's going on here. Another example is in Acts chapter 8. There was a man named Simon and and Luke says that he believed. He believed and he was baptized. There was some Holy Spirit activity going on. There were miracles. There were exciting things going on. And he got excited because he was attracted to power. He had been involved in in dark powers and now he saw holy spirit power things happening and he wanted the holy spirit and he 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 was wondering how much he could pay for the holy spirit hey what you know can i get that power too you know as as if he could you know um slang the holy spirit 
let me have a little bit here. I'll, here, I'll sell you a little bit here, right? And, and Peter, notice what Peter says. He, he, he rebukes him, a severe rebuke. He said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You need, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Now, was this guy a Christian or what? It says he believed. It says he was baptized. But Peter says, you have no part. You have no part in this, no lot or part in this matter. Your heart's not right before God. Now, Christians have part in the Holy Spirit. And their hearts, they get right before God by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. But Peter says, you're not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, Peter was able to see uh, in the spirit what was going on here. and And he says these harsh words to this man named Simon. Church history tells us that this guy, Simon, led a lot of folks astray, that he turned out to be a heretic, okay, by the fruit, by the fruit of his own life. Um, you guys getting encouraged this morning? <laughs> um, let's look at the next one here. Demas, 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he's gone to Thessalonica. Demas was rolling with the apostle Paul, who was also doing miracles, apostolic authority sent one from god and he's rolling with paul and he bails out now this 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 should disturb us it should bother us like what's going on here now the next thing is look consider jesus's parable i think this is probably one of the most helpful things when we're talking about this because there are different responses to the message of the gospel one, uh, Jesus said that, that, that there's a, the kingdom of heavens like a, like a sower who went out sowing seeds. Okay, that's a preacher. Jesus was a preacher sowing seeds and some of the seed fell along the path. Okay. But what happened to it? The birds snatched it up. That's, and he interpreted that as the devil. Okay. Snatched it up lest it should produce any fruit, lest it should penetrate, seek down in, produce any fruit. Then there was the rocky soil. There was some that fell on rocky soil. And these were those who heard the word. They got excited and they believed for a little while. But once trials came, once the road of discipleship got difficult, they fell away because they had no root within them. Now these guys look like Christians here. They believe, they're rejoicing, they're enthusiastic, but they didn't have any root. And they didn't have any lasting fruit. And then the next one is those who fell among the thorns, okay? And Jesus interpreted this as um, where, where the seed was planted, and then it started to grow up, but the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke choke the life out of it. So there was no lasting fruit. And then there was good soil, now, I think that Jesus is giving us a description here of a true Christian. The, the, the good soil is the one who hears the word of God and they keep it. They bear fruit 30, 60 to 100 fold. They, they're, they're fruitful. Okay. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 8. He said, if you continue in my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you continue in my teaching, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what true disciples do. They they continue, they hold fast, they hold on to what Jesus has said and they believe to the saving of the soul. Jesus also said 
In John 15, 8, he said, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the fruit of our lives gives evidence to the root that we have in Christ, being rooted and grounded in Christ. So these are some helpful biblical texts that will help us wrestle with the difficult concept of apostasy. And then the next one from John, 1 John 2, 19. John said this, he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. This is very helpful. This is one that I go back to over and over. I think it's very insightful because in 1 John, John is trying to give us a black and white picture of true Christianity and false Christianity. And and, and one of the things that this should do for, for those of us who are true believers, we're children of God, we're in the family of God, This these things should, in 1 John, they should give us assurance. 1 John 5, he said, these things I've spoken, to, I've written to you who believe in the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, the things that he wrote about, okay, and if you're, if you've done the 2-7 series, you know the assurance of salvation verse. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And that life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Okay, we can have strong assurance in Christ that we are God's children. And not just because that one verse. Make sure you go back and you read the the first half of 1 John. Because in 1 John chapter 3, John describes what the born again child of God has in their life. The fruit that they have. They have love. They have love. That's one of the overarching marks of a true Christian is there's there's love that that springs towards God and there's love that spread out towards those around us. Love is a mark of a true Christian love and they practice righteousness. First John 310, it says that for in this, the the um, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. He who does not love his brother or does not practice righteousness is not born of God. OK, these are all your most encouraging verses, I know. The, the last thing here, and we'll get back to Hebrews after this, uh, is, is Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now notice this. Jesus didn't say, I knew you and then you once fell away. He says, I never knew you. Now, if you just read that top part there, you didn't read Jesus's response. You would think that's a genuine Christian. He's casting out demons. He's prophesying. He's doing many wonderful works in God's name. That's a Christian, right? And Jesus says, no. So it's possible to have these Christian experiences going on and not actually know Jesus. It's possible to have a profession to say, Jesus, you're my Lord, and not really have genuine faith that endures to the end. So these are some things that were, are helpful. Now let's get to the positive side. Okay, Thankfully, the author doesn't just leave the sermon there. 
he gets to some assurance that the, the change, the tone changes here. Okay, and, and I, saints, I want you to hear this this morning. I didn't leave enough time for this part. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We feel sure of better things. Why is that? Things that belong to salvation. Why? For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each of you show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the, 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 the preacher here, the author of Hebrews has assurance of salvation for these, for the audience. And the reason why he has assurance for them, generally speaking, is because they have shown love and they've served the saints. Now, let me, let me just make a note here for, for us that this love doesn't earn, this love and service does not earn salvation with God, from God. This love and service is evidence of salvation that these saints have experienced. It's not an earning. It's not a meriting of salvation because you've loved God so well. You've loved the people so well. You've served so diligently and faithfully. Now you get salvation. No, it goes the other way around. And we've already talked about this in chapter three, that those who are who have true faith display the genuineness of their faith through faithfulness. And so there's assurance, there's assurance that comes. And the more you and I grow into Christ's likeness, the greater that assurance should be in our lives. First John tells us that, that if we, if we love in word indeed, if we truly love, then we will assure our hearts before God. There, there's, there's, there's biblical evidence that we belong in the family of God because of the love that we have, the supernatural love that He has first deposited in us, for us, from him. Amen. And so then the author um, of Hebrews points to Abraham's example of a genuine faith. There's an Old Testament example here. And he says for when he uh, well, first, he says that be imitators, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And then he gives us a great example of faith and patience. Abraham was old and God promised him some children. And he waited at least 25 years for that child Isaac to come. And he waited and he waited and him and Sarah tried something else and they waited some more and they got the son. They got the promise fulfilled. God showed up for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to to whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So here's a guy whose name means father and he has no kids. That might have been a laughing stock amongst his contemporaries. He might have been a laughing stock. Here's Abraham, father. <laughs> he doesn't have any kids. And then he hears from God and God says, I'm going to call you Abraham, father of, of many, of a multitude, right? How, how, how hilarious is that? God says, I'm going to call you a father of many and you have, you're still no kids. But he believed God. He believed God. Paul points to his faith as a genuine faith and God says he's righteous because he believed. Paul points to that, that New Testament righteousness that we get through faith. 
James also points to Abraham as, as having a faith that really works, faith that has fruit, faith that's genuine, that has effects. James 2 says faith without works is what? It's dead. It's like a screen door on a submarine. It's like a song you can't sing. Faith without works. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But the faith that, that, that we're justified by does not stay alone. There's, there's fruit, there's action, there's works that should follow up genuine faith. Amen? And so Abraham's in an example, verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For the people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. He says, look at Abraham. He points to Abraham's example and God's faithfulness in Abraham's life as a persevering faith. And then he, he points to his own. The author points to the faithfulness of God in verse 17. He says, for when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us. God's faithfulness is the basis for ours, our faithfulness towards him. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And this is what the author of Hebrews tells us to do over and over. He points us to faithful examples throughout history. We got Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. All right. We got these, these examples who were, who were not flawless, but they were faithful. They believed God. And, and even more so, God was faithful to them and carried them and sustained their faith. And God is the great hero of the Bible. While we have these other great examples like Abraham and David and Moses to, to, to imitate who, who experienced God, we have the ultimate example in Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who is flawlessly faithful and obedient to the Father and who became the sacrifice for our sins so that we might be his forever and that we too might respond in faithfulness to him living by faith in him the son of god who loved us and he gave himself for us we can be faithful because god is faithful i heard about a, 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 an evangelist that was witnessing to a young man who was struggling he, with his taking that leap that from taking that step into faith in christ and, and this was the thing that held him back he was concerned that he wouldn't be able to be faithful to his wife because of his past history. He hadn't been faithful in his marriage relationship and he didn't want to become a Christian because he didn't want to be a hypocrite and not be faithful to his wife and say, yeah, I'm following God. And the evangelist convinced him that when you are a true believer in Christ, the faithful one comes and he lives inside of you. The spirit of the living God lives inside of you and he works in you and he and, and he produces the fruit of faithfulness in your life. It's the work of the spirit. It's what it's what comes out of the lives of those who are truly genuine love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control 
Each tree is recognized by its fruit, Jesus said. And so we have an anchor to our soul. And I'll finish with these last verses and then an application. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have great reason for assurance and salvation. Because God is faithful. He's the faithful one. He's the one that grounds us, that keeps us through the storms. And we're looking to Him. And we're anchored in Him. We trust in Him. He's the object of our faith. He's the the, the giver and the sustainer of our faith. We have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as you see here, he's wanting to go back in and talking about Melchizedek. We're going to go back and talk about Melchizedek next week. All right. Um, but but he gives this little little pause here first from Hebrews 511 to Hebrews 620 and talking about one immaturity where Christians need to grow up, need to grow up. Where, where there needs to be some next steps. There needs to be some growth. Growth. There needs to be some fruit. And there may be some among the, the, the community of faith who don't just need to grow up. They need to get saved. They need to get real with God. And they need to put their faith in God and trust Him and, and take refuge in Him and cling to Him as their only hope for salvation. I was talking with a, a young man just yesterday who... Uh, was a Buddhist and he affirmed Christianity. He said, you know, we, we, we need to stick together, you know, because religions come on hard times these days. We need to stick together. He was telling me how he believed that, that Christianity is a way of salvation. He believed it. And, and so we're having this conversation and, and I said, okay. So what would you say? You know, like, yeah, Christianity is a way for salvation. Well, I, I know. I know a little bit about Buddhist. And I said, well, what do you do with Jesus's words in John 14, 6? When he said, I am the way, not a way. I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. He didn't have much of an answer, but, but it's something to wrestle with that every one of us have to wrestle with at one point. These who were among the Christian faith here, among the Christian community, the audience of the, the, the Hebrew, the Hebrews author, they needed to make sure that they were only looking to Jesus for salvation, not going back to Judaism here. You see, this CERN here wasn't about these professing Christians going back to an atheism or agnosticism, or relativism, or postmodernism, that the concern was them going back to Judaism, and maybe even trying to synchronize a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism here, no persecution here, no persecution here, everybody will like me. And many in our culture are trying to do this with religion. You just try to take some of the good of each of them, you'll be okay, you'll be liked by, by more people, and, 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 and you'll be more tolerant, if you will. Right. But but many of those who claim that Christians, conservative Christians are intolerant because we believe in absolutes. They're making absolute statements themselves when they say there's no absolutes. That's an absolute statement. Right. There are absolutes there. There is truth. The, the warning signs that God gives us in scriptures are real. There's a real cliff 
that people can fall off of. But true Christians, we hear it and we heed that warning. So let me close an application here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These are Paul's words. Knowing that God is working in you, saints, both to will and to do his good pleasure, and that he will complete the work that he began in you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, I think many Christians need to think about what they believe and why. Many Christians need to really think about their relationship with God and not just assume because my parents were Christians or because I was brought up in a Christian home, I'm okay. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourself and see whether you're in the faith or not, if indeed you pass the test. And so we should not take lightly this promise of salvation. We should believe it and examine it, study it, cling to it and be assured that God's word is true. And then keep the good work, keep up the good work that you're doing, saints, knowing that God sees you and he will reward your faithfulness. He will reward your faithfulness. Look at the faithful and imitate their faith, as the, the author tells us. And lastly, be assured that your hope is sure and steadfast in Christ. He is the one who anchors you through the storms of this life, through the test, through the trials, through the winds and the waves. Jesus said that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold because lawlessness will abound. But know that Christ is still your anchor in the last days, no matter how dark it gets and how difficult it gets. And no, no matter how many of those who were once in the community of faith with lots of influence and lots of intelligence lead many astray. Know that Christ is your anchor, your sure and steadfast anchor. Amen. So let's pray. Lord, we need to hear words that cut and words that heal. Words from your scripture that cause us to examine what we believe and words that assure us, words that comfort us. And may we be a people who embrace all that you've said through scripture, who embrace the authority of scripture and who respond in obedience and faith and obedience to what you have said. Help us as we as we try to witness to others, as we try to lead others to put faith in Christ. Help us to be discerning. Help us to be willing to say some hard things or some challenging things in a loving, gracious way, trusting that you might perhaps grant them repentance. We pray that you would help us recover a wonder and awe of your great salvation that you have given us. May we not neglect it and may we not drift, but may we be diligent and earnest, not sluggish, but may we be diligent and faithful to the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me close with a blessing prayer from the end of Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good so that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.
Amen.